Galileo is the father of modern science, people would have you believe. But why? What exactly did he do that was so new that he fathered the entire concept of science and nobody had thought of it before? Was Galileo the first to bring together physics and mathematics? Or was he the first to base science on data, on experiment? Or was he the first to give practical experience more authority than philosophical systems? The answer to these questions is no, no, no. Galileo was nowhere near the first to do any of these things. But he still often gets credited with these so-called innovations, even in scholarly sources. So I'm going to run down the list and prove point by point why these people are wrong. The notion that Galileo was somehow the father of modern science remains a standard view, even among modern historians. For instance, the Oxford Companion to the History of Modern Science, published in 2003, just flat out says precisely this, that Galileo may properly be regarded as the father of modern science. It's just says so in so many words. And this view is considered so unassailable that even the very Pope once conceded that, that Galileo is justly entitled the founder of modern physics. Those are the words of uh, Pope John Paul II in 1979. So it is a deeply entrenched view, the notion. There is, however, less agreement what exactly Galileo did in order to deserve this epithet of father of science. As uh, Dijkstra says in his classic uh, History of Mechanics, no one indeed is prepared to challenge Galileo's scientific greatness or to deny that he was perhaps the man who made the greatest contribution to the growth of classical science. But on the question of what precisely his contribution was and wherein his greatness essentially lay, there seemed to be no unanimity at all. That's what Dijkstra uh, says. So indeed, uh, I am prepared to challenge Galileo's greatness and uh, we will therefore go through all the major attempts at capturing uh, what precisely it was that uh, wherein Galileo's greatness uh, uh, consisted and criticize those one by one. First, mathematics and nature. So it's a common view that Galileo was the first to bring together mathematics and the study of the natural world. I could give you a long list of uh, scholars, uh, you know, who have said exactly this. That would be uh, uh, it's very commonplace. And in order for that view to make sense, you must obviously maintain that before Galileo, mathematics and natural science were fundamentally disjoint. But this assumption is plainly and unequivocally false. In Greek works by mathematically competent authors, there is absolutely zero evidence for this assumption, and a mountain of evidence. To the contrary, we attack mathematically everything in nature, said Iamblichus uh, of Greek science, and he was absolutely right. This is a completely uh, commonplace explicit methodological program in Greek science. For example, the Cambridge Companion to the Hellenistic World points this out. Hellenistic natural philosophy often took mathematics as the paradigm of science and sought to mathematize their study, that is, to ground all his claims in mathematical theorems procedures, a goal shared by modern scientists. This is also what Greek scientists were doing. So it's the exact opposite of the claim that the Asians were unable to conceive the unity of mathematics and science. So how can so many historians get it exactly backwards when they're talking about Galileo and say that the Greeks didn't know anything about the unity of math and science when clearly they did if you start reading Greeks? Well... It is by ignoring the entire corpus, basically, of Greek mathematics 
and instead relying exclusively on philosophical authors. So one historian, for example, tells us that following the classification of philosophical knowledge deriving from Aristotle, a sharp division prevailed among the Greeks between the natural science or physics, which studied the causes of change in material things, and mathematics, which was the science of abstract quantity. So, look, this kind of thing was perhaps a problem for philosophers who spent their time trying to classify scientific knowledge instead of contributing to it. I challenge you, however, to produce one single piece of evidence that this division between physics and mathematics had any impact whatsoever on any mathematically created person in antiquity. It just doesn't happen. The mathematicians are committed to a unity of, of science and mathematics. This furthermore alleged divide between mathematics and physics doesn't exist even in Aristotle's own works, uh, for that matter. Aristotle lived well before the glory days of Greek science, before Archimedes and before Hipparchus, etc. And he was clearly not uh, a mathematician, not, not really competent in mathematical domains. Nevertheless, even Aristotle, for all uh, those shortcomings, nevertheless, he lists mechanics, optics, harmonics, and astronomy as fields based on mathematical demonstration. Uh, he even explicitly calls them branches of mathematics. Now, how can anybody infer from this that Aristotle saw the very notion of a mathematical science as a conceptual impossibility? It's just nuts. Historians, in fact, do precisely this by insisting that, in fact, these fields that Aristotle mentions are really just exceptions. So let me give you a typical quote here. It's from uh, A Short History of Scientific Thought, published by Palgrave Macmillan in uh, 2012. Previous assumptions before Galileo, encouraged by Aristotle and scholastic philosophers, held that mathematics was only relevant to our understanding of very specific aspects of the natural world, such as astronomy and the behavior of light rays, as to say optics, uh, both of which could be reduced exercises in geometry. Otherwise, however, mathematics was just too abstract to have any relevance to the physical world. That's the end of that quote. So, I would reply that the implausibility of this view is very obvious. If, as Aristotle himself clearly states, mechanics, optics, harmonics, and astronomy are four entire fields of knowledge that successfully use mathematics to understand the natural world, who in the right mind would then categorically insist that nevertheless, other than that, mathematics surely has nothing to contribute uh, to science. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Look, if mathematics has already given you four entire branches of science, why would you then close your mind to the possibility of any further success along similar lines? It's hard to think of any reason for taking such a stance, except perhaps for someone who themselves lack mathematical ability and want to justify their neglect of this field. This strange habit of writing off numerous branches of mathematical science in antiquity as nothing but so many exceptions is necessary to maintain this uh, triumphalist narrative that the great Galilean revolution that somehow is supposed to be unprecedented. Uh, for instance, we are told that it was Galileo who first subjected 
other natural phenomena to mathematical treatment than the Alexandrian ones. So in other words, except mechanics, astronomy, optics, music, statics, and hydrostatics, Galileo was the very first to take this step, you see. That is to say, if you ignore all previous mathematicians who did this exact thing in great detail, then Galileo's step was completely revolutionary. Yeah, sure enough, that much is true. Here's another strategy for explaining away the obvious fact of the extensive mathematical sciences in antiquity. It is to say, well, they are not genuine science because they were abstractions. They're just uh, theoretical fictions and not actually science. Some people claim that despite ostensible applications to, of mathematics in numerous fields in antiquity, Nevertheless, mathematical theory and natural reality remained almost entirely separate entities due to the high level of abst abstraction of the mathematical theories, which meant that they were barely connected with the real world, as one historian has put it. Supposedly, it was Galileo who broke this spell. Quite an absurd claim, really, since this critique is all the more true for Galileo's science. Even Galileo's supposedly best discoveries are often way out of touch with reality. Like his law of fall, his law of parabolas, they obviously fail experimentally, as we have discussed uh, before. Not to get mention uh, Galileo's many erroneous theories, of course. It, we, they are obviously even more disconnected from, uh, from reality, for obvious reasons. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Greek scientific laws, so statics, optics, hydrostatics, harmonics, they concern uh, everyday phenomena that can be verified by anyone in their own uh, backyard using common household items. And indeed, they are still part of modern uh, physics textbooks, high school laboratory demonstrations uh, to this day. So in optics, for example, here in Alexandria approved the law of reflection, which anybody with a mirror can check for themselves. And here on proved is using the distance minimization uh, argument that is still found in every textbook today. It's the same proof that we use. Light travels along the shortest path from uh, point A to point B via the mirror. And that's how you can, uh, from that assumption, you can deduce the law of reflection that the incoming angle equals outgoing angle. And Diocles uh, demonstrated the reflective property of the parabola and he used it to cause burning, as the source says, by concentrating the rays of the sun uh, with a uh, paraboloid mirror, a principle that is still widely applied today, for example, satellite dishes, flashlights, and so on. Ptolemy demonstrated the magnifying property of concave mirrors, like a modern makeup mirror, for instance. Again, something that you can very readily uh, test with ordinary, readily available items. These kinds of results are not atypical, and they are clearly not disconnected from reality by any means, quite the contrary. So the false notion of a divide between mathematics and science, it also rests on, uh, for more, more fundamentally, on the conception of mathematics itself as purely abstract uh, field. So let me quote to you uh, a typical uh, expression of this view. It goes like this, uh, quoting a recent, uh, a recent scholar here. Traditionally, geometry was taken to be an abstract inquiry into the properties of magnitudes that are not to be found in nature. Dimensionless points, breathless lines, and depthless surfaces of Euclidean geometry were not traditionally taken to be the sort of thing one might encounter while walking down the street. 
whether such items were characterized as platonic objects inhabiting a separate realm of geometric forms or as abstractions arising from experience, it was generally agreed that the objects of geometry and the space in which they are located could not be identified with material objects or with the space of everyday experience. So that's the end of this quote from an, as expressing a standard view among historians. And However, this view is, in fact, if you go back to the ancient sources, you find indeed plenty of people saying this kind of stuff, but those people are all philosophers. Nothing of this sort is ever stated by any mathematically competent author in antiquity. On the contrary, mathematicians routinely take the exact opposite for granted in their works. All this allegedly abstract geometry it's constantly applied to physical objects in Greek mathematical works without any ado. Uh, the long list of Greek mathematicians who studied the natural world, they all took for granted the identification of geometry with the space and material objects around us. And why shouldn't they? For thousands of years, geometry had been used to delineate fields, to draw up buildings, to measure volumes of produce, and a thousand other uh, practical purposes. Exactly the sort of thing one might encounter while walking down the street, as the passage said. Every single theorem Euclid's geometry can be verified this way by concrete measurements, constructions with physical tools and materials. Uh, so why would mathematicians suddenly insist that their field is completely divorced from reality? What could possibly be their motivation for doing so? It accomplishes nothing. It, it creates tons of obvious problems for them when one wants to apply mathematics far and wide in numerous areas, as the mathematicians always did. They did optics, hydrostatics, etc. Et Why would they say, oh no, mathematics is actually this completely abstract thing. They would be left in uh, trying to explain how then it can be useful in any, in any situation. On the other hand, people coming from a platonic point of view, these people who have a, an, an axe to grind in terms of uh, separating the world of thought from the from the material world, those are the kinds of people who are inclined to take this extremist stance of uh, saying the geometry is something that comes from a pristine realm that's completely separate from the world around us. Indeed, uh, Christian authors found this very appealing, didn't they? I mean, you, you can see the parallels with uh, Christian theology, you know, this idea of the, the spiritual realm and uh, the material world is completely irrelevant. So it was a parallel that, that was eagerly picked up from Platonic thought into in Christianity. You have to be completely ignorant of the vast tradition of Greek mathematical science to maintain that the unity of mathematics and science in the 17th century was in any way revolutionary. But even if one accepts this completely wrong-headed view, in fact, credits should still not go to Galileo. Some recent historians, they have begun to stress that actually the mathematization of the sublunary world begins not with Galileo, but with Alberti who wrote on the geometrical principles of perspective painting in the 15th century. And here's a quote from such a historian. The invention of perspective by the Renaissance artist by demonstrating that mathematics could be usefully applied to physical space itself constitutes the momentous step toward the general representation of physical phenomena in mathematical terms. Uh, no, 
that's not right. These historians, they correctly challenge the narrative of Galileo as this heroic visionary who united mathematics and, and the physical world. However, they retain the erroneous underlying assumption that this unification was revolutionary to begin with. So perspective painting that they're using as their example, it is fine mathematics indeed, but it wasn't a momentous step demonstrating that mathematics could be applied to the world because that had already been demonstrated over and over again thousands of years before. In fact, uh, Vitruvius, to name just one example, he had already pointed out the obvious. He says, an architect should be instructed in geometry, which is of much assistance in architecture. Well, uh, you know, why would he say that then? If the momentous insight that geometry is relevant to the space of everyday experience is still more than a thousand years into the future. It makes no sense. The absurd notion that the application of geometry to physical space was somehow a renaissance revolution, it can only occur to those who have spent too much time reading philosophical authors, pontificating about the divisions of knowledge, instead of reading authors actually active in those fields. It's also telling, by the way, that the quote that I read above, you noticed the restriction to the sublunary world. Uh, so, allegedly, uh, there was this profound conceptual divide, you know, between heaven and earth in this period. That is a standard uh, trope among historians, as we discussed before. Of course, the Greeks mathematized the sublunary world too, but, well, okay, you have to read specialized mathematical works uh, to find out much about that. Astronomy, on the other hand, is such an obvious example of an extremely successful and detailed mathematization, one aspect of reality, that even philosophers and historians cannot ignore this elephant in the room. Hence, they rely on this uh, qualifier that the allegedly revolutionary step of Galileo's generation, of the Renaissance generation, was the mathematization of the sublunary world, you know, as if that was somehow, you can explain away the existence of, of astronomy this way and say, oh no, here, the real revolution. Aristotle, he did indeed make much of this uh, distinction, the difference between earthly, sublunary world and the world of heavenly motions. But look, Aristotle is one particular dogma of one particular school of philosophy. There is no reason for any mathematician to accept it, nor is there any evidence that any mathematically competent person in the golden age of Greek science uh, did so. The Aristotelian uh, dichotomy is far from natural, far from necessary. In fact, Aristotle argues against his predecessors that the celestial world is radically different from the sublunary world that one historian has uh, observed. Well, against his predecessors indeed, that is to say, this was not something that everybody believed, it was something attached to the particular dogmas of Aristotle and not to general belief uh, overall. And for that matter, even if uh, Aristotle's dogmatic and arbitrary dichotomy is accepted, it would still be madness to acknowledge the undeniable success of mathematics on one side of the divide in, in astronomy and yet consider with the application of mathematics on the other side of the divide of mathematics of everyday space, that that would be somehow a conceptual impossibility. This is crazy. You know, if mathematics can do 
so many things to part of the world, why wouldn't it be applicable to the other part as well? Let's see what uh, Ptolemy has to say about this. Ptolemy, the ancient astronomer. Well, he speaks in quite Aristotelian terms, really, when he contrasts astronomy with physics. The subject matter of astronomy is eternal and unchanging, while physics investigates material and ever-moving uh, nature situated for the most part amongst corruptible bodies and below the lunar sphere. So there we have that division between the two worlds. However, what Ptolemy expresses here is arguably perhaps more of a fact than a philosophical commitment. Planetary motions are indeed regular, periodic and eternal, whereas you know falling bodies, projectile motion, these kinds of things, the phenomena that we experience in terrestrial physics are inevitably and inherently uh, fleeting, they're limited to a short time span. So there's a big conceptual difference there. It is conceivable that somebody might seize on this dichotomy to explain, so to speak, why mathematics is suitable for the heavens only and not for the sublunary world. But this, however, is definitely not Ptolemy's opinion. Ptolemy, in fact, unequivocally expresses the exact opposite view. As for physics, mathematics can make a significant contribution there too. This says Ptolemy's exact words, that mathematics should be applied not only to the heavens but also to the world around us. Altogether, uh, the Aristotelian dichotomy between heaven and earth was never an obstacle to mathematicians, and with good reason. The whole business of emphasizing the dichotomy in the context of the mathematization of the world is a figment of the imagination of historians, who find themselves having to somehow explain away astronomy as irrelevant when they want to claim that there was a mathematical revolution in early modern science, and, well, we do not need to resort to such uh, fictions if we instead accept that the unity of mathematics and science have been obvious since time immemorial. Another argument for uh, Galileo as the unifier of physical mathematics consists in stressing that other mathematicians of his day were often more concerned with pure geometry than with uh, projectile motion and such things. For instance, in France, there were highly capable new Archimedeans, as they have been called, such as uh, Descartes, Roberval, Fermat. Um, but their focus was rather different than that of Galileo. Here's a quote from a recent book expressing this view. These French mathematicians were indeed good uh, mathematicians, but they did not consider mathematics as a method for understanding physical things. Mathematical constructions were only abstractions to them, with which it was fun to play, but which were not to be confused with what really happened in nature. Moreover, they were not interested in the ways in which motion intervened in natural processes. This is what that, uh, a recent scholar says. In my view, Galileo he would have loved to be one of these kind of new Archimedeans, uh, if only he had been capable of doing that kind of mathematics. And furthermore, it is not true that these Frenchmen, uh, that they ignore motion and the, or the mathematization of nature. We have discussed some such examples before. For instance, uh, Descartes studied the law of fall. Fermat corrected uh, Galileo regarding the path of fall, uh, falling object in absolute space. Both Descartes and Fermat wrote on uh, the law of refraction in optics. They derived it from physical considerations regarding the speed of light in different media. Uh, likewise, uh, Descartes explained the 
motion of the planets and the fact that all the planets revolve in the same direction about the sun. He explained this by postulating that they were carried along by a vortex. So these mathematicians were clearly not ignorant of or uh, averse to studying how uh, motion intervened in natural processes. So it's not really attention to motion per se, but rather the study of projectile motion specifically that sets Galileo apart from his uh, mathematical contemporaries. So does Galileo deserve great credit for this? I don't think so. Why is projectile motion important anyway? With Newton, projectile motion took on fundamental importance because he saw that planetary motion was governed by the same principles as projectile motion on Earth. Galileo had no inkling of this insight whatsoever. Also, with Newton, projectile motion is a, a fundamental a kind of paradigm illustrating the principles uh, that govern all mechanics, such as inertia, Newton's force law, force equals maximum acceleration. In Newtonian mechanics, this is the basis for understanding uh, further phenomena like pendulum motion, for example. So Galileo, he got the, all of that completely wrong. He did not use uh, the projectile motion case to understand the as a paradigm for studying further things, he got the pendulums completely wrong. He didn't base that on his analysis of uh, projectile motion, etc. Galileo should not be celebrated for these things either. We see that you know praising Galileo for studying projectile motion is anachronistic. Galileo got lucky. The topic he studied later turned out to be very important for reason he did not perceive its connection with planetary motion, its connection with uh, as a paradigm of mechanical behavior like pendulums and, and, and a million other things. He didn't see any of that. In retrospect, you know, his work seems much more prescient, uh, groundbreaking than it really was for this reason. Galileo himself, in fact, motivates the theory of projectile motion almost exclusively in terms of practical ballistics, as we have spoken about before, a nonsensical application. It has zero practical value. So, you can hardly blame other mathematicians for ignoring that and say, well, Galileo was the special one because he's the one who did this, this absolutely worthless application that doesn't uh, work. So these are my rebuttals of the various ways in which Galileo has been praised for mathematizing nature in, in, in an innovative fashion. I think that is an unsustainable viewpoint for the reasons I have given. Here's another way in which Galileo was supposedly innovative, namely in his emphasis on an empirical scientific approach. The Cambridge Companion to Galileo expresses this view clearly. Galileo became and still is the model for the empiricist scientist who, unlike the natural philosophers of his day, sought to answer questions not by reading philosophical works, but rather through direct contact with nature. That's what the Cambridge Companion says. And this is indeed an image that Galileo himself very eagerly, although dishonestly, uh, sought to promote, as we have discussed before. You can recall the story about the Babylonian eggs cooked in a sling, for example, and also Galileo's rhetoric against uh, Aristotle and the, the law of fall, about how Aristotelians were ignorant, uh, refused to see with their own eyes uh, the facts that were plain before their own eyes. Well, uh, so Galileo tries to portray himself as, look at me, I'm the one who actually 
looks at real data while these other people are just believing their philosophical dogmas without trying the thing. So the idea that Galileo contributed to the scientific revolution by his emphasis on this empirical uh, perspective obviously goes hand in hand with the view, as some has put it, the verdict that Greek science suffered from an overdose of rationalizations at the expense of careful scrutiny, whether experimental or observational, of the relevant facts. Or in other words, as another historian has said, Greek thinkers generally overrated the power of unchecked speculative thought in the natural sciences. This is, uh, th- those are standard opinions. So, however, in reality, an empirical approach to the study of nature is not a newfangled invention by Galileo. It's rather common sense. It was obviously adopted by the Greeks, especially the mathematicians. Even Aristotle, who practiced speculative thought in the natural sciences to a much greater extent than, than the mathematicians, even Aristotle was a keen empiricist. His followers insisted on this as one of the key principles of his philosophy. Aristotle's uh, zoology, for example, it largely follows a laudable empirical method that's quite modern in spirit. For example, to understand uh, how bird embryos developed, he broke open uh, a bunch of eggs at all kinds of different stages of development and uh, analyzed, uh, you know, after two weeks, it looks like this, after etc. So that's just straight up empirical science. And the same approach was applied by Aristotle's immediate followers, a, a botany, petrology. For example, there we have preserved the texts where Aristotelian followers are, are cataloging extensive empirical data. For instance, a wide variety of minerals react to heating, that kind of stuff. Just uh, catalogs of data and experiments. This is uh, straight-up Aristotelianism. And this was far from forgotten in Galileo's day. One often encounters, in fact, committed Aristotelians arguing for empiricism. Here's an example. Quote, We made use of a material instrument to establish by means of our senses what the demonstration had disclosed to our intellect. Such an experimental verification is very important according to Aristotelian doctrine. That quotation is from Piccolomini, an Aristotelian philosopher, uh, writing well before Galileo is in the 16th century. So what's it going to be? Is Piccolomini the great inventor of modern science then because he was talking about experiment or, you know, in fact, even carrying out experiment, not only talking about it? Well, I don't think so. But you just see the the problem there with uh, trying to say that Galileo was uh, created science out of nothing because of his empirical method. That that uh, just doesn't hold up, does it? Uh, in fact, uh, it's interesting that these Aristotelians were the ones pressing the uh, the empirical perspective. Actually, in the time of Galileo, you have Aristotelians quite often attacking him and saying, "You Galileo are too speculative." Whereas we, Aristotelians, we are the ones who stand for empiricism. So it's interesting. Here's an example of that. I, I give you a quotation here from one critic who writes to Galileo in a letter. And here's what he says. At the beginning of your work, you often proclaim that you wish to follow the way of the senses so closely that Aristotle, 
who promised to follow this method and taught it to others, would have changed his opinion, having seen what you have observed. Nevertheless, in the progress of the book, you have always been so much a stranger to this way of proceeding that all your controversial conclusions go against our sense knowledge, as anyone can see by himself, and as you expressly say yourself, speaking of the theory of Copernicus, which was rendered plausible and admirable to many by abstract reasoning, although it was against all sensory experience. So that's once again an Aristotelian who is emphasizing empiricism, saying that that's our thing. And it is true that there were also many spineless Aristotelians, so-called, in, in Galileo's day, who preferred hiding behind textual studies rather than engaging with actual science. But this was one perverse sect of scholasticism, not the overall state of human knowledge before Galileo. A contemporary colleague of Galileo uh, puts it well. He says, The science of nature has been already too long made only a work of the brain and the fancy. It is now high time that it should return to the plainness and soundness of observations on material and obvious things. That's Robert Hooke. Uh, note the, the word choice. is quite interesting, isn't it? Return. We should return to observation. It's not Galilei invented a new thing, empiricism. Rather, empiricism is the natural and obvious way to study nature, the departure from observation in, in uh, certain philosophical circles is a, a corruption, aberration. We need to return to the obvious natural state of affairs. It is not a revolution, it is not a creation of Galileo, it is merely the obvious way to do, uh, to do science. So, the misconception that the Greeks were anti-empirical it stems from a foolish reading of the mathematical tradition. Galileo fan Stillman Drake, for example, he puts it like this, quote, Archimedes never appealed to actual measurements in any of his proofs or even in the confirmation of his theorems. The idea that actual measurement can contribute anything of real value was absent from physics for two millennia. Or here, it, the same idea is expressed again in another quote, the mathematics of Euclid, and the physics of Archimedes were necessary but not sufficient for Galileo's science. They leave unexplained Galileo's repeated appeals to sensate experience. If you read Greek mathematical works in a superficial way, then you will indeed be left with this impression that it has nothing to do with empiricism, nothing to do with observation or testing. For example, if you open Archimedes' treatise on floating bodies, you will find no mention of any measurement or experiment or data of any kind, only theorems and proofs. It may seem natural to infer from this then that, well, Archimedes was doing speculative mathematics, his divorce from reality. He had no understanding of the importance of empirical tests. That's what it looks like to historians who insist on an overly literal uh, reading of these texts and they lack a sympathetic understanding of how the mathematical mind uh, works the fact of the matter is that Archimedes' theorems are empirically excellent. It makes no sense to imagine that Archimedes was reasoning about abstractions as an intellectual game, and that his extremely elaborate detailed claims about, the, for example, the flotation behaviors of various bodies given their uh, shapes and densities just happen to uh, align exactly with the reality by pure chance. 
Archimedes doesn't have to point out that he made very careful empirical investigations because it is obvious from the accuracy of his results that he did. Here is a better way of putting the relation between mathematics and empirical data. It is from the Oxford Handbook of the History of Physics, quote, Mixed mathematics were often presented in an axiomatic fashion, following the Archimedean tradition. In this tradition, experiments were often conceived of as inherently uncertain, and therefore they could not be placed at the foundation of a science, lest that science too be tainted with that same degree of uncertainty. To be sure, experiments were still used as heuristic tools, for example, but their role often remained private, concealed from public presentations." End quote. So yes, this is absolutely correct. The point is not that empirical data is neglected, but rather that it is a mere preliminary step. Anybody can make measurements, anybody can collect data, but a self-respecting mathematician does not publish those trivialities. Instead, the mathematician goes on to the really challenging step of synthesizing what you have learned from data into a coherent mathematical theory. Galileo did not have the ability to take this step so he had to stick with the basics and he had to pretend nonsensically that this was somehow an important innovation. And then, as now, there were enough non-mathematicians in the world for this cheap trick to be successful. What about the experimental method? Was that perhaps Galileo's special contribution, his special ingredient to the scientific revolution that set him apart from what had come before him. Some people say so, yes. Empiricism, we have, which we just discussed, is mere uh, passive observation, you might say. The real innovation was active experiment. A famous supporter of this view is Immanuel Kant, who wrote as follows in the Critique of Pure Reason. When Galileo caused balls to roll down an inclined plane, a light broke upon all students of nature. Reason must approach nature in order to be taught by it. It must not, however, do so in the character of a pupil, who listens to everything that the teacher chooses to say, but of an appointed judge who compels the witness to answer questions which he has himself formulated. That is Kant's opinion. Many um, modern historians have expressed the same idea. Let me give you one example. I quote, The originality of Galileo's method lay precisely in his effective combination of mathematics with experiment. The distinctive feature of scientific method in the 17th century, as compared with that of ancient Greece, was its conception of how to relate a theory to the observed facts and submitting them to experimental tests. This feature transformed the Greek geometrical method into the experimental science of the modern world. Uh, I say that, in fact, in reality, the use of experiment in Greek science is abundantly documented to anybody who bothers to read mathematical authors. Greek scientists knew perfectly well that it is not possible for everything to be grasped by reasoning, and many things are also discovered through experience. All of that is a the literal quote from Thilon. This quote refers to the precise uh, numerical uh, proportions needed for the spring in a stone-throwing engine. Quite a specialized problem, but the point generalizes, of course. The same author, Filoni, also offers an experimental demonstration that air is corporeal. It's a body. 
Ptolemy also experimented uh, in this area. He used balloons or inflated skins, as he calls them, to investigate whether air or water has weight in, in its own medium. Does a balloon full of water sink in water or, or does it float or what? Ptolemy performed the experiment with the greatest possible care, according to Simplicius. Here, Earl of Alexandria gives a detailed description of an experimental setup to prove the existence of a vacuum. He explicitly states that referring to the appearances and to what is accessible to sensation counts more than abstract arguments that there can be no vacuum. In fact, such arguments have been given by Aristotle. But here we have a, you know, a mathematically-minded author saying, no, no, that's nonsense, and he proves that Aristotle is wrong using experiment. In optics, there are a bunch of experiments as well. Ptolemy explicitly verified the law of reflection by experiment. This is expressly done in the sources. And he also studied refraction experimentally. And he gave uh, tables for the angles of refraction of a light ray when it passes between different mediums, such as air, water, glass. He did all of those combinations of light going from one of those media to the other. And he uh, tabulated for incoming uh, light rays at different angles, increments of 10 degrees. What if it's coming in at 10 degrees? If it's coming in at 20, at 30, at 40, uh, what is the outgoing angle? If you uh, if you send in a light ray, where does it, how does it, you know, it bends towards the, the, the normal if it is uh, passing into a denser medium and so on, the lower refraction. Ptolemy does all of that experimentally. Uh, Archimedes, there's another famous story. Archimedes caught a forger who tried to pass off as pure gold uh, a crown that uh, was actually gold-coated silver. By, he used an experiment in, uh, using uh, ex hydrostatic principles. He was able to expose the crown as a knockoff without damaging it in any way because he was able to ascertain uh, things about density by weighing and using uh, water. Uh, this discovery was the occasion for him to reportedly run naked through the streets yelling Eureka in excitement. It's a famous story. Such was his love, you know, of empirical experimental science. Many scholars keep insisting that, like a second Plato, all Archimedes really cared about was abstract geometry. Evidently, even running naked through the streets, screaming at the top of your lungs, even that is not enough for some people to open their eyes. It's hard to imagine what else you can do to draw their attention to the obvious, namely that Greek mathematicians embraced experimental method through and through. They were so excited about it that they ran naked down the street. In, in exactly, That's how much they loved the experiment. And yet, this myth still persists that, oh, the Greeks, they didn't get it, you know, they were just doing abstract geometry. Crazy. So, okay, I have argued now that uh, Galileo was not the first to apply mathematics to nature, nor was he the first to base science on data, nor was he the first to base science on experiment. So I've ruled out those three options. We're still only halfway uh, down the list, really. 
the list of things that Galileo supposedly pioneered as far as scientific method is concerned. So I will have to go through the rest of the list uh, next time. Thank you.